This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. And good morning, good afternoon, wherever you happen to be on this, here in at least in LA, gorgeous Sunday morning. Skies are blue and the sun is out. And it's been really, it's been, it's been in the, I mean, 90s. And, you know, we have drier heat, so it's not so terrible. When I was back in New York, it was in the 80s, but it was also 80% humidity. And boy, you felt it. Uh, anyway, you're live with Dr. Jeff Werber here for the next 30 minutes on Ask the Best with Dr. Jeff on Pet Life Radio. You can also uh, join me here, as many of you do, on Instagram Live. Here for you, here for your pets, answer any questions you may have. And I'm hoping you have a lot of questions. And, uh, you know, um, my ways to get a hold of me is just join us here live. It's great. Go on to PetLifeRadio.com. Click on shows. Ask the vets with Dr. Jeff. And there'll be a, a link left you for there. Just click on the link and you're going to be good to go. Or better yet, 877-385-8882. If you want toll-free, good old-fashioned phone, that is the way to go. 877-385-8882. But I can't see you if you do it that way. Or I see, oh, Vicky is here with us. Hello, Vicky. How are you? So um, she's waving. And um, so uh, I think we're going to have some questions. If you have any behavior kind of questions, then, uh, in fact, we have one that came in from a, a listener here on Pet Life Radio. May as well start the show with that. Hold on. I'm also New York Yankee. Took my 15 year old Jack Russell for a checkup, blood test, or something. And a veterinarian wants a urine sample. What should we see? What urine sample to test for? So, good question. So, if if the bloods at 15 and a half, first of all, that's a heck of a good age. But if the blood shows something to do with kidney values, then there are a number of things we could see from the urine as well. As kidneys fail, then the kidneys stop doing what they do best. And that is reading how much water that the body takes in is needed to support the body and the excess it can urinate out. So for example, if you just ran a marathon, your urine is going to be extremely concentrated. So you don't have a lot of free water to, to urinate out. So it all stays that the body needs it. Conversely, if you are out and having a couple of beers, right? And after the third or fourth beer, you find yourself having to go to the restroom every 15 minutes. That's because it's all coming through. All that water is excess. You don't need anymore. So urinate it out. That is the job of a healthy kidney. So if we have kidney values, the BUN, the creatinine, the phosphorus are elevated, that might be a sign we want to see what is the solute, the dilution of the urine? Is it like tap water, which you call isostenuric? That means the kidneys aren't reading the body. Everything that goes in is going right back out again. The kidneys aren't doing their job. They can also look for bacteria. They can also look for sediment in the urine. They can look for fat in the urine. There are a lot of other things we see in a, in a good urinalysis. Typically, when I have a 15 and a half year old dog, by the way, 15 and a half is really good, even for a Jack Russell, then I automatically include the urinalysis. I, I, I do a panel that includes blood and urine. And I think that's very important because there are a lot of things you can tell from both. So instead of having to go back with the urine sample, I always do the same. Every time I do a senior, quote unquote, exam on a dog or a cat, I always include urine automatically. Um, but yeah, de get it and then let me know what it says. Also, New York Yankee, I would like to know what, what the blood showed. If you want to you know, send me a copy or just let me know those things. Um, yeah, it says her kidneys, right? So I want to know what those values were and also how she's acting. That's very important too. So I'm waving and waving and waving. 
So I have a simple answer. There's a question that came in. Hey, Bethany, for, oh, we have a request. We'll let you in a little bit. So uh, this is from a listener or a viewer, possibly on Pet Life Radio. And the question is, I've listened to several episodes of a few different podcasts of yours. Some of the episodes talk about how cats and dogs have much more sensitive hearing than humans. Now we should be mindful of disturbing them with loud noise. Yet all your podcasts listen to have loud, jarring music, which gets, it's interesting. Well, I'll tell you that. Why the noise directly violates the advice of your podcast, et cetera, et cetera. First of all, most computers have a little button you can push. And that button is to change the volume. So if, now what I mind, it turned off completely. I don't even hear the music. In fact, I always tell Mark, I want to hear the music because I know when it's over, when I can start again. And that's why he gives me a thumbs up. So if my voice is loud and jarring, then that's a different story. And I have a funny stories about that as well. But on the breaks, we know the breaks are coming because I usually say, all right, and we're going to be right back after these short messages. Just turn your volume down or do what I do. I turn it off and I ignore them. I wait for Mark's thumbs up. And during the break is when I get to talk to you guys here on Instagram. So, but let me tell you this funny story. I heard this years ago and it's a, a couple of times since. Woman is in the kitchen. Her dog is with her in the kitchen. TV is on in the den. And all of a sudden the dog gets up and runs into the den with purpose. I mean, it was so purposeful that she says, that's weird. So she follows her dog into the den. What did he run in the den for? Why? Because I was doing one of my segments on TV. He heard my voice and ran into the den. And I hear it all the time at the office when someone's in the waiting room and they hear me uh, talking in a different room, the dogs perk up and they want to run towards the room. The good news is, unlike a pediatrician, my patients usually love me. Whereas when you take your kid to the pediatrician, all they want to do is, I remember back in the day when I first started practicing, it was much more formal. I'm very informal now, but I figured I'm spending half the time on the floor anyway. What do I need a white coat on for? So I used to wear white coat, stethoscope, and I would walk into a room. And if mom was there with her pet and her baby or her young child or toddler, I would walk in and the kid would cry. <laughs> so, boy, you poor pediatricians, they don't love you at all. So, um, no, it's good. Um, I think I'm, I'm in much better shape. So, um, anyway. I have the same experience, Jeff, which is really funny. I have the same experience when I'm on the phone with clients and I say, just tell them to sit. The dog automatically sits when I'm talking on the phone. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> that is so funny. The voices, they recognize voices and hear. So, it's hilarious. So, when you, know, when you start commanding a dog and I'm working with an animal, every time I'm talking to a client on the phone... Their dog comes running over if they have it on speakerphone, and they're like, the dog is waiting for a command from you, Vicky. And I laugh about it because I get a relationship with their dog right away. Of course, I'm a little, it's a little bit of a cheat. The minute I walk in, I give the dog a treat. So I'm automatically their best friend. So I use high drive treats when I get to anybody's home that I do private training to. I do this, you know, in class, it's different. I stay away from giving their dogs treats. So the dogs will pay attention to them and not me. But I have that same experience. And I'm very much like you. I All I want to do is love on them. But, you know, in that said, I stay away from a dog's head unless I'm the owner. Because being the owner is the relationship with the face. It's kind of like a stranger. If they walked up to you and rubbed you on the cheek, you'd be like, that's a little invasive. <laughs> so, so if you go up and you rub them under the chin or on the shoulder blades or something, they receive you differently. They also get a lot of your smell on them. So they learn to trust you. So I don't let strangers go up and pet my dog's head. Although Jeff, you're an exception. 
Because you you just they just love you no matter what. <laughs> you know, one thing I tell you know when you're teaching moms, I, I lecture at uh, Children's Hospital LA. We talk about dog bites, and I'm teaching residents. These are pedi- pediatric residents who are going to be ultimately seeing patients, kids with the moms and dads. And I'm talking about how how to teach your children to approach dog. And I always say, don't ever walk up to you know. Kid. And the, you know, sometimes the most difficult thing is when you're dealing with kids that grow up with dogs because they're fearless. Because they right. can do anything. They see a dog. They now they have their own dogs. They come. They give them a big hug, and they they're smooching with them. And they see another dog in the street. And they go, "Oh, another dog!" And they want to do the same thing. So it's really important to teach them. Not every dog is like our dogs, and you you don't want to you don't want to put your hand above them. You always want to go low. Probably easier palm down because kids have a tendency to grab. It's funny that you mention the hand, Jeff, because you know a lot of people do this to a dog. That's a really offensive thing, and it gives them no scent. So if you turn your hand the other way with your palm open, you clench your fingers, they can smell the most smelly part of your body, which is the middle of your palm starts to sweat. So uh-huh. going up to a dog like this and teaching kids to go up a dog like that, not the best thing anymore. We've learned better. Right. Interesting. I'm saying uh, I want some questions here while we have a Vicky Vanity Behavior questions. Then I want to talk about something that someone sent me a question during the week. So Bethany, yes, for sure. I also want to wait until we hear from the uh, the radiologist. But um, yeah, just you know the limit. You know when he starts to have that more of aggressive panting. That's when you want to start easing up. So he shouldn't have those long 20-minute walks. I met one of your neighbors uh, this week who sees Steve out there all the time and you're walking the dogs. And so it's, I would go slower walking, let Chumley call the shots. If he wants to stop, we have to read our dogs better in a case like this. And as they get older, when you get like that, that 15 and a half year old Jack Russell Terrier, it's very important to have a better understanding of their psyche and they're not getting lazy. I, for example, I had my lab in the pool this week and um, oh, he is a dog. He's pool nut and I know it and he doesn't know it. So what happens is He's in the pool and he is, and I can see it. I can see his behavior. He's 12 years old now. So I see him and he's, he's swimming. He gets that tennis ball. He brings it back. But every time you come back to the steps, of course, the first thing you want to teach a dog who likes to swim, where the steps are, he goes right for the steps. He comes out. And every time he, it would took him longer and longer to make the step up from that last step to the deck. So Usually, he never wants to call it quits. He thinks he can go all day still because he loves to swim. But no, I, I have to call it quits and take him out. But you brought up such a good point, Jeff, about swimming. You know, you're there swimming with your dog. And when you said they have to learn about the steps, that's a crucial training and vet, I'm sure, thing is that when a dog is not with a person in attendance, Sometimes they get too tired to get out, even though they know where the steps are. So that's something that's really important. What you're talking about is training humans and dogs. When is it time to get out? And when is the dog too tired? They shouldn't be doing it on their own. Right. Well, which brings up a great point. We have the classic pool baby gates around the pool. We didn't do it for my grandkids. We did it for my dogs. For the dogs. Of course. Because, because, (laughs) uh, you know, I'm sure all of us have had stories of a drowned dog and or you whether it was your own or you knew somebody so very much and then uh, bethany uh, talking about her dog chumley heat affects breathing too right absolutely so um when we have to be much more that's why we don't even for healthy dogs and we're going to talk about this later on the show if we get to it um now that it's been so hot across the country and we're feeling it right now okay so 
we, we need to be very, very, very careful that we are concerned about the overheating these dogs, never exercise them in the middle of a day. We also want to be cognizant of having water with us at all times. I tell you, if before, maybe after eight or nine o'clock a.m., you can't exercise them. Even for uh, like a short little run, tennis ball at the park, frisbee at the park, you got to wait till evening. And then also in the evening, we have to be very careful because that pavement, especially black asphalt, retains heat for many hours after the sun goes down. So it's not just waiting till maybe after 7 p.m. It might have to be after 9 p.m. before you can take them. And then I get reports from people across the country, especially in areas in the Southeast, where it's not only hot, but extremely humid, and it is still 80 degrees at night. So again, we need to be very careful. I do a hand trick. You know how you touch the cement and it doesn't feel that hot? But if you leave your hand there longer, you start to feel the burn. So I was just teaching people that exactly what you're talking about is that a quick touch to the cement may not feel like it's too hot for their feet. But if you hang out there for a second, you're going to start really feeling how hot the cement or asphalt is. I love that you said that. So important for the summer. When we come back, I got a question this week. And one of the reasons why I wanted, you know, Vicky here, because it's sort of a medical and behavior at the same time. And that is behavior changes during or after a spay or a neuter. What I know what we find from the medical aspects. I want to know what we hear from the, um, the behavior aspect. So when we come back from our break, and uh, by the way, for the people whose pets are with you and are freaking out by the music, turn your volume down as well. And after I get my thumbs up from Mark, I'm going to turn my volume back up so your pets don't freak out uh, when they hear, I thought it's, it's nice music, but you know, hey, you have to have music on commercials. Come on, we all do. So uh, anyway, don't go away. I got these words. I'm going to stay live with you here on Instagram so we can talk during the commercials. Mark, I'll be waiting for your finger. And I mean the thumb, not the middle. All right. We'll be right back. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back. We're back live, which is perfect. So anyway, um, we're talking about diarrheas. And um, so another uh, question, is rice good for diarrhea? That is, Sorry. That is one of the, <laughs> interestingly, that, so, so Vicky's dogs say no. No, it all depends on, <laughs> it all depends on the diarrhea. Small intestinal diarrhea, like if your dog, for example, had parvo, and now it's coming out of parvo, then, then uh, yes, rice with a classic was cottage cheese and rice or chicken and rice back in, I mean, when I was in vet school, that was it for all diarrhea. But now we've learned so much more. For large bowel diarrhea, rice is too binding, white rice. Now, if you had a long grain brown rice that is very, has a lot of fiber, that might be okay. 
but white rice is, is, a, is, a, is a no-no for large intestinal diarrhea. But small intestinal, absolutely rice is good. So that's why it's so important to really make the distinction between whether the problem was large bowel or small bowel. Um, and I was right. So uh, as far as food sensitivity, you have to know what, what, is, what um, proteins or carbohydrates the dog is sensitive to. And then, of course, make sure the treats avoid that as well. The biggest culprits, and I mentioned this before, in fact, I just read a case I sent to my good friend, David Feldman, who is the, the board certified internal medicine specialist extraordinaire. And um, uh, he was, uh, again, confirming what I say, the biggest culprits in foods that we see in dogs are chicken, beef, corn, and wheat. If you can avoid those four to start as you're doing your search for what could be the culprits, start with those. If it's still a problem, then you start eliminating things. Then you look for what's called a novel protein diet. These are proteins that the dog has probably never had before. Cod, salmon, tilapia, bison, rabbit, venison, kangaroo. I mean, for weird, weird proteins. And, um, and that might you know, solve your problem. So uh, where do tapeworms come from? We're going to get to this. And I want to talk with Vicky about uh, the issue with um, spaying and neutering and behavior. Tapeworms come from fleas. They are not, a tapeworm itself cannot pass from one dog to another. It's not like the dreaded echinococcus tapeworm in Africa, which causes starvation and eats up all your body's nutrition. They are more aesthetic than anything else. They are a nuisance. They uh, come up on the stool. You might see them places. They freak you out. The problem is flea. It's the flea, not the worm itself. So when you see tapeworms, basically that's a big sign of the dog says, I have fleas. And your job now is to control the fleas, and that'll control the tapeworms. Now, of course, we have to treat the tapeworms once they're there. They're easy to treat. Praziquantel is the treatment of choice. It comes in many different forms. It's also added now to other products as well. But the key is uh, you got to control the fleas. So what are the best ingredients? There's really, you know, when it comes to food, in my opinion, there's no best. Um, I look for foods that, first of all, the dog likes. That's the most importantly. I don't care how good the food is, how well it's made. If they don't eat it, it's great. So I look for food that they like. Does it give them good stool, energy, shiny coat, etc.? And you know, let's don't. It's not all about the dog. It's about you too. How convenient is it for you to get it? Do you have to drive thirty miles to a pet store out in Yenemsville, right? Because they're the only one that carries this fancy, fancy food. Oh, it's not the right food then. Um, how about budget? I've seen bags of food now, especially $70, $80 a bag. I mean, come on, that's a lot of money. So you want to kind of join the two. What, what works for you? What's right for your dog? Of course, the dog comes first. Then if you have to make a choice of two or three, but one is more convenient and it's close by at the market and you can afford it, that's the best food. There is no such thing as the best because every dog is different. Every budget is different. Every convenience factor is different. So, so you really, you got, you got to kind of weigh it all. And that's kind of always my, my recommendation. Oatmeal for diarrhea. Yes, oatmeal is a good, is a good grain for diarrhea, cooked oatmeal. Cooked oatmeal. And um, I recommend that in canned pumpkin, sweet potato, yam. Those all seem to help. All right. So, Vicki, thank you yes. for joining me again. Of course. Uh, it's great to have you. We get a lot of behavior questions, as you know. So let's talk for a second. I know, because again, working in rescue as you do, most yes. of the dogs that you are dealing with have been spayed or neutered or are going to be spayed or neutered. And now 100%. from a so behavior standpoint, let's talk about what are the negatives, if any, behaviorally. And I'll talk about some of the medical aspects, but let's hear from spaying and neutering. What do you hear? What should a person who's about to have their pets spayed or neutered at least be aware of? 
So being totally frank, most of the people who worry about neutering are males, the owners. (laughs) It's a big issue. I personally have never experienced an any dog, I've rescued over 6,000 dogs and I've trained thousands. And I've never seen a change in personality after they've been spayed or neutered. Let me just add one thing. Personality, I would agree. Okay. There are two things from a medical aspect. First of all, I often have to tell my male clients, I am not running a four for two special. You get to keep your two. I just want the dogs too. And I feel strongly about that. Let me give you just a quick thing to think about. And I use this often. Let's make a couple of assumptions here. All right. And again, we're off a little bit, maybe, but 50% of the dogs on the planet, let's just stick to US. 50% of the dogs in the United States are male and half are female. It's a good, safe assumption. Secondly, let's say, sadly, that 50% are spayed, neutered, and 50% are not spayed, neutered. So then, if I were to ask, what is the likelihood of then statistically of having a neutered male versus a non neutered male, a spayed female versus a not spayed female? 25, 25, half of half of a half is 25%. So now if I asked you, what is the likelihood that a dog found dead on a US road or highway would be any one of those 25%? Okay, let's say a non-neutered male. Well, since half the dogs are male and half are female, half are neutered, half are a non-neutered would be 25%. Well, guess what? It's 75%. That means the numbers are way overboard when it comes to the, the non-neutered male Instead of only a quarter of them being found dead, 75% of dogs found dead on U.S. roads and highways are non-neutered males. What does that tell you? It tells you they want to roam. They pick up that scent of the female, their male kicks in, that testosterone kicks in, and they want to roam, and they're going to get hit by cars. And it's a big, big problem. Second thing, from a more of a medical thing, and I'm going to let Vicky take over, is weight gain. There are studies that have shown about a 20% chance of weight gain or 20%. So meaning that if you are going to spay neuter, be prepared to do one of two things, cut back on food a little bit or increase exercise a little bit. There's a strong likelihood they will gain some weight because again, sexual energy is energy and even females have it. So um, that's why I recommend. One thing you notice also in not all neutered males, but you know, like females, when they go out to pee, they let it all. It's one squat. They're done. Okay. Right. Whereas males, oh my God, they have to mark every tree. That behavior does change a little bit after neutered to where like my big yellow lab, almost 12, right? He, first of all, he's a little older. It's hard for him to lift that leg. So he squats now like a female and he lets it out all at once. My younger males, even though they're all fixed, they still, and they lift their leg on a tree. Nothing comes out anymore, but they still lift their leg. So it's funny. But let's go ahead. How about aggression and personality? How about watchdogging? Is there a difference? So my feeling about about spaying neuter, and the reason why I mentioned men is because a lot of men have a hard time neutering their dogs for their own personal discomfort. That's what I meant. I was joking. But so I believe that I haven't seen any change in training. I train dogs that are fixed. I train dogs that are not fixed. So I don't see the difference in behavior. They're more, they're better listening if they are not neutered or not. I don't think there's any difference. Medically, I would leave that to you. But for me as a trainer, the only problem I see is that when there are males that are not fixed and there are ones that are, 
if you're in a group together, the male has more testosterone and they will be a little more aggressive about being the leader of the pack. So I do see that. Which, by the way, is why, and I think it's a good idea, a lot of pet parks and rescue areas will say we have to have the dogs not only vaccinated, but spayed and neutered. Exactly. Because I I do agree that I do see more of that wannabe macho in the non-neutered male. But also, what I find that watchdogging, however, there is absolutely no difference. People say, well, I'm afraid he's such a good watchdog. He is still going to be a good watchdog because a lot of them, like the dogs that are police and military trained, guess what? They're females and they're spayed. Exactly. Don't use that to argue with me because I know my dogs all neutered and they are all good watchdogs. They respond to every sound that's not normal. And so I'm not worried. So don't ever put that in your list as, oh my God, I I live in a nice house in a nice area. I need my dog to be a watchdog. He'll still be a good watchdog. And also just for health reasons, Dr. Werber, I mean, we talk about this a lot, you know, we've talked about it is like, I have a dog right now that has a mammary tumor. She's 10 years old. Had she been spayed younger, would that have made a difference? Likelihood a strong difference. In fact, the question coming in right now, Equus Lives Matter, and yes, they do, by the way, how old is too old to spay or neuter? I don't think there is an age. Now, if you have a 14-year-old dog that's starting to have other signs and never had any related like female problem, mammary tumors, et cetera, and you don't want to knock them out, every anesthesia, maybe it's a different story. What we worry about in non-spade, you have certainly greater risk of mammary. In the male, you have greater risk of BPH, benign prostatic hyperplasia. In the female, pyometra. Pyometra is a uterine infection, all right, that if not handled, could be deadly. And what is the treatment for pyometra? Spay. Now, instead of spaying a healthy dog at seven, you're spaying a very sick dog at nine. Where's the logic to that? In fact, most legitimate breeders, all right, that after their dogs have reached their breeding age, which is usually seven years of age, they won't breed them anymore, maybe even six. What do they do? Spay them or neuter them. Because why risk all the potential problems of not doing it as they get older? There is only one breed. And again, the, the jury is still out where they seem to be more or as many or more problems in the spayed or neutered when it comes to cancer than the non-spayed or neutered, and that's golden retriever. And that's the only breed where many enthusiasts and breeders are saying, you know what, I know that there's pyo, I know there are some other mammary tissues, but there are other tumors that seem statistically to be greater in the spayed or neutered population. Therefore, I'm not going to spay or neuter. So how old is too old? When there really is no age, unless there are other things that have nothing to do with being a male or a female, but their body in general. If I take a tumor off this dog, I'm going to spare at the same time. So I was going to say, you know, because I'm also, I'm a trainer and I own a rescue, Eloise Rescue. I see a lot of sick animals due to lack of spay and neuter. Like you said, I see a lot of mammary tumors. I do take a lot of medical dogs. People are asking on Instagram whether a dog who's spayed or neutered, if it changes their aggression. My answer is no. If you have an aggressive dog, your dog is aggressive because it needs training, not because it's not spayed or neutered. I don't believe that to be a change in the dog. Except as we mentioned, intermale aggression when they're with other dogs. But yes. Um, right. And uh, oh, by the way, a question just came in. I don't know, Vicky, can you see the questions they come in too? I can. Okay. So uh, how about Labrador retrievers? Interestingly, the study, this was done at UC Davis and other schools too. They ran all the same statistics on Labradors. It was only the golden. And um, so anyway, right now, my well, I, I knew to my dogs. Oh, the only, I should say this, the only difference between 
what I do now and recommend now versus what I did 30 or 40 years ago is the age at which to do it. And um, now the general consensus is let them reach full sexual maturity on large breeds. I won't do it I, ideally till 18 months, though a year twist my arm. Females, let them have one heat. Their first heat, do not let them have their second heat because that's when the mammary cancer risk starts to increase. So we used to do it before the first heat. That's ideal. Yeah. So I let them have one. Usually it's around seven or eight months of age, some dogs a year, and then spay them maybe two months or so after their heat. Remember, their next heat's not for seven months. So I just like all the swelling to go down and let them kind of behaviorally, you know, be more comfortable after their estrus. And I will spay them uh, whatever that is, but uh, let them have a heat. Uh, when is it typically going to first heat? They go into the first, well, again, textbook, seven months. Now, what I've learned, we used to have dogs that haven't had their first heat. They're coming up on a year. We're waiting for their first heat. And one of my colleagues, actually friends, we knew each other back in Berkeley, both as undergrads. I walked around campus with Thor, my gorgeous black lab. She had two yellows. We would talk, we would schmooze. I had no idea that she was heading to vet school. And so here I am, and I'm a junior. I'm going to my third year of vet school. And who sees who I see on campus? All right, Autumn Davidson. And Autumn with her Labrador. She's been a Labrador like I've been a Labrador person forever. And uh, she was in vet. I said, oh my God, I had no idea you were pre-vet. I was pre-vet. So anyway, she became a reproductive specialist. And she's my go-to when it comes to questions on reproduction. And I call her and I said, you know, what is this thing with silent heat? And she politely told me that we no longer think it's silent heat. We think it is the first heat. So it's not seven months. It could be eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. I had one 13 months. So it really varies. But if the dog read the same book that I read 35, 40 years ago, it would be seven months. Unfortunately, as I joke, they, they don't read the book. I have to add just one quick thing, Dr. Orber, because that is ideal. That is the dream to be able to hang on until they're a year. But as a rescue, just so I'm throwing it out there, as a right. rescue, we wish we could always do that. But at the shelters, they give us a certain amount of time to have the dogs fixed, spayed or neutered. And the other thing is, is that a lot of us as rescues can't give a dog to a person unless they are spayed or neutered you know, because sometimes people aren't coming back to spay or neuter the dog. So I just want to throw that in. What effect do you think that has on the dog that gets spayed at six months? Well, the only thing, first of all, let me say that, that I no agree and I battled rescues and the city. I've been able to write a voucher for health reasons and push it to like nine months. But and thank uh, no, you. It's, and, it's, <laughs> and the old fashioned way was you got a voucher for free spay neuter. And they had the voucher, they pay in advance like $70, which is what a bargain, right? right? And they don't come back. So I totally get it. One of the issues that, that we see in the first, it's empirical data. It's never been, no one's ever actually done a statistical study and analysis, but we find that in females, early spay and neuter might lead to urinary incontinence later on. It appears that that estrogen has an effect. When it comes to males, especially large breed males and females. This statistic got me nuts, and which is why I am a big advocate and I truly push. It was a study done on Rottweilers, and it was done uh, basically studying every analysis of age. What effect does aging have on Rottweilers? And what they found in dogs that were pre-puberty spayed or neutered, in the male, 
pre-puberty neutered a 65% greater incidence in long bone cancer as adult and senior dogs. And in the female, it was a 35%. Oh, that's huge. So that basically that exposure to growing bone of the testosterone or the estrogen, Julie, has a protective benefit later on in life, years later from that bone developing cancer. So that's when I said, okay, none of this six month garbage anymore. Now we're going to wait. We're going to wait till they're fully mature. And uh, on a male, 65%, that's huge. So there you have it. That's why I'm so nuts about it. What does it mean when a dog is fixed, but continues to hump? I'd love to answer that. Well, you know, humping, and I tell this, why do little puppies hump? Do you think it's sexual? No, they're pumping because it's, it's dominance. They're exerting their dominance, and that's how they learn. And they say, okay, no, I'm the boss. No, I'm the boss. No, I'm the boss. Okay, let's, it's like, you know, guys get into a fist fight, right? What they want to do. So, okay, I'm going to hump you, and that means I'm the boss. So it's usually more of a behavior thing. It's not a sexual thing. So as a trainer, I don't allow my dogs to do that because they are dominating in the pack. And when you start to allow a dog to dominate in the pack that way, you're going to end up with a fight between your own dogs. And even if they've lived for, yeah. So it's really important not to get angry at them, but to say off, leave it, to take the behavior away. If they won't, put them on a leash for a while and have them stop doing that and correct them because that is a fight waiting to happen. Okay. So for all of you, we can go on and on and on, but we can't because I'm, I'm, I'm getting dirty looks from Mark now. It's time to, uh, <laughs> to uh, say goodbye. Thank you for going 12 minutes over, Mark. I think with, uh, it, it's a very popular piece. So for all those save your behavior questions, maybe we can have Vicky join us maybe you know once a month just to come back as a regular because uh, a lot of great information. And, uh, and yes, yes, plus they will jump. And that's true, the comment here. Plus, they, if they get used to it and see that it works, they're going to try to jump you. So uh, we will be here, same time, same uh, channel, next week here on uh, Instagram Live, here on Pet Life Radio. As the behavior questions come in, we'll kind of save them. And then uh, maybe we'll, it'll be sooner than every, every four weeks or five weeks. So anyway, thanks for joining us. Would love, if you need to get a hold of me, you can always get a hold of me here on Instagram Live or on Pet Life Radio, Dr. Jeff at PetLifeRadio.com, on Instagram Live, Werbs underscore DVM. Uh, love to hear your comments. And um, well, you know, I, I love doing this. If I can help you develop a better relationship, better behaved dogs, that's what Vicky wants, um, then I think it just it strengthens the bond between pets and their people and between people and our pets. So uh, I think it's great. And I am a trainer in Los Angeles, and my name is Vicki Wagner, and I can be reached at EloiseRescue at gmail.com questions or to work with with a trainer perfect all right thanks again uh we'll see you next week have a wonderful week everybody and keep your dogs cool because it's hot out there bye-bye let's talk pets every week on demand only on petliferadio.com